You're listening to Deep Cut. I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. Each episode, we focus on a director by discussing their most popular film alongside a personal favorite from elsewhere in their filmography. We'll also talk about each director's life and career to bring in context that may help us view their movies as they wanted us to. This week, Eli chose Marlon Riggs to discuss. Which movies are we looking at today, Eli? Today we're going to be talking about Tongues Untied from 1989, which is probably Riggs's most widely recognized work. And then also we're going to be talking about Black is Black Ain't from 1994, which is my deep cut choice. Have you guys seen any of Riggs's other movies? No. I mean, I've just seen um, these two that you've picked. And then I also saw Anthem, which you suggested, which is like the experimental short film that he made. That's like pulling footage from all, all kinds of places as well. Tongues Untied is, uh, is experimental, but Anthem is way more experimental for sure. How about you, Wilson? I hadn't seen any of Marlon Riggs's work before watching this. So this was a fresh watch and I really loved both movies. I'm sort of pissed at myself that I hadn't reached him sooner or had been taught Marlon Riggs in any of my college film classes because I do feel like he's such an important documentary filmmaker and experimental filmmaker whose work has influenced so many directors that followed him, whether they being Black or queer directors or just being like white or other directors. I'm going to say I'm equally pissed because it's like I've never heard his name before in class. Literally never heard his name. I don't know whether it's I wasn't paying attention or like it just didn't come up. And obviously we didn't watch any of his films, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. I'm not trying to shit on the way that we yeah. were taught filmmaking, <laughs> but I do feel like this is a larger issue about canonization and which directors get to be canonized and which directors don't. There is a big reason why Marlon Riggs is not held in a, as high regard by cinephiles or just like people who teach films and filmmaking and film analysis because he is a black gay man. Probably Eli will talk about it later on when he gets into more of the like the background information. But I think the thing that kind of stuck out to me is that Tongues Untied is also called Popular Pick, right? But it's really only famous because it was controversial at the time for being about this subject. And it blew up because people were being really annoying about it and like being mean about it. And that kind of has that kind of Streisand effect, which is why that is his most known work. It's not as recognized for the way it treats its content, which is a really wonderful, creative and positive way. I saw Tongues Untied in the extracurricular film series at our undergrad. And I remember being really blown away by it, by the sound of it and the experimentation of it. And then Riggs was a name that I always sort of had on my mind and remembered. And then once we started this podcast, I knew pretty quickly that this was going to be a good opportunity to explore more of his work. I have now watched all of the publicly available eight shorts and features that he made. I've watched some interviews with him. And there's a documentary about his life directed by Karen Everett, who was also a UC Berkeley journalism faculty member, which Riggs was. Also in preparation for this episode, I got to speak with Christian Badgley, who was an editor on a number of Riggs's films. We're going to publish that as an extra episode once this episode is released, and you'll be able to hear that conversation. Yes, be sure to check that out. Most of the information that I will present to you guys about Marlon Riggs comes from those sources including his own movies, because he talks about his own life a lot in his own movies. So who was Marlon Riggs? I was thinking about how to describe him in a sentence, and I think I'm going to let him speak for himself using a quotation that he gave in an interview in 1992 to a student at UCLA. 
So he said, quote, People ask me, what do you want to be known as? How should I describe you in this piece that I'm doing? I say I'm an independent documentary producer. If you want to say that, I'm black, gay, filmmaker, fine. If you want to say gay black, fine. If you want to say just black, fine. I mean, I know in my own internal psyche that I am all these things and more. And yet I find that it is necessary for people in order to get a handle on me and my work is to box me. And what I try to do in my work is to subvert that box, not by demanding a certain kind of label, but simply by doing the work that I do so that I defy the conventions of those kinds of categories. And I think that serves not just as a description of himself, but also his filmography and the types of themes that he comes back to. He wanted to, quote, destroy certain misconceptions about what it means to be gay or to be black or to be a person of color and to really challenge those entrenched notions of our identities in ways that really exclude those of us from being a part of communities that we belong to. So now I'll tell you a bit about his biography. He was born February 3rd, 1957 in Fort Worth, Texas. He was a charismatic kid. He loved the stage in church and was popular in school. He did sports. He enjoyed dancing. In 1974, he got a full scholarship to Harvard, and he read a lot about African-American history. So he moved to San Francisco and attended UC Berkeley, where his master's thesis was Long Train Running, which is about blues performance in Oakland, California. It's a fairly straightforward documentary, but there are some glimpses of some of the techniques that he would employ later on, particularly in rhythmic editing. And then he raised funding for his first official documentary, Ethnic Notions, which is about racist caricatures in early American popular culture. It's really just as informative today as when it was released because of the legacy of those characters still matters. So Riggs joined the faculty at UC Berkeley School of Journalism in 1987. And then in 1988, Riggs had kidney failure and as a result tested positive for HIV and AIDS. When I spoke to Christiane Badgley, she told me that this was what put Riggs' career onto an entirely different trajectory. He started working on Tongues Untied. He cast his friends from the San Francisco group Black Gay Men United and poets he knew. He said that we were, quote, carving out our space, carving out our community, end quote, through making the movie. It won Best Doc at Berlin and many other top prizes at other festivals. And then, as Ben was alluding to, it had something of a controversial release because it played on PBS and caused some public outcry, particularly from conservative politicians, some of whom even used footage from Tongues Untied in attack ads against their political opponents. Wow, is that even legal? In America, unfortunately, you can get away with a lot of bad things. What I read is that they took footage and they basically edited the so-called sexually explicit parts together to kind of make it look like Riggs was just making porn for the broadcast television. So basically re-edited the footage, made it look so-called like just porn and like sex, and then used that to attack PBS and like and Riggs as well. I read his piece where he actually struck back at these, I, I don't even want to call them critics, but like, I don't know what else to call them. But I can't remember what... Public platform. I asked Badgley about this and she told me that it didn't discourage Riggs. The things that he responded to more and cared about more, the screenings with audiences of people who felt seen by the movie and were responding to the movie in the moment and cheering and coming together as a theater in response to Tongues Untied, even though maybe the larger part of the Wikipedia entry is about the negative response. There was so much positive response. And as Wilson said earlier, Tongues Untied has influenced so many things that we can point to. Yeah. Riggs said, quote, 
Tongues Untied needed to embrace the truth and tell the truth of who we are, not apologizing and not diluting to make the experience of Black gay men palatable to consume. So he established Signifying Works, a nonprofit production company, and made four more works, Affirmations, a short that used outtakes from Tongues Untied, Anthem, which is like a music video built out of a poem performance, Color Adjustment, which is an essay film like Ethnic Notions that's about Black representation through TV history, and Je ne regrette rien, which is a series of interviews with Black men who live with AIDS. So in 1992, Riggs began work on Black is Black Ain't. He was getting much sicker, and he knew that this would likely be his last film. He felt an urgency to get it all on the table with this movie. He said, quote, I want Black is Black Ain't to help build community, and that is a community across many of our differences that exist now, differences that presently divide us, end quote. What you were saying earlier about how he started making Tongues Untied after he found out he was diagnosed with HIV, that was the first time that I like knew I found this out of this information. So I feel like it really reframes the way that I see his films because there is definitely a sense of urgency in both mm-hmm. works. It feels very confrontational, his filmmaking. What he's trying to get across to his viewer, he makes it loud, he makes it clear. He has something to say and he needs to say it because he has limited time remaining. There's something like, you know, Gaspar Noé confrontation, but this is a kind of kind confrontation. And yes. as you're saying, it's very purposeful and, and he, he really had something to say. He, he talks about how Tongues Untied, quote, came out of a sense of the imminence of death. I knew likewise that it was a cool knowledge that in order to bring together all of what I needed to do for Black is Black Ain't, I would have to go through some kind of personal crisis, physical crisis. I knew that. Because part of the story was about the possibility of death and the necessity, because of that, to articulate all the truths that reside within your soul, end quote. Wow. So he filmed in New York, New Orleans, California, and England. He interviewed dozens of everyday people and public figures. Christian Badgley told me that it ended up being over 400 hours of footage. And that work took a toll on Riggs, and he got sicker. Riggs entered the hospital in November 1993, when not much of the script was done. In lieu of a script, Christian Badgley filmed interviews with Riggs in his hospital room, where he told her how he wanted the movie to be executed. Riggs left the hospital the next February, and he passed away in the home that he shared with his partner Jack on April 5th, 1994. And he was only 37. Badgley went on to edit Black is Black Ain't, according to Riggs' instructions, It won Best Documentary at Sundance that year. And I'll finish off this biographical section with one more quotation from Riggs. Quote, The problem with us as a people is that we have not learned to love ourselves or each other, that we are still in contention with our history, with our past, with the people on the streets, and we have not engaged with the most rudimentary level of understanding of who we are and what we have to come to terms with. End quote. He wanted everyone to love themselves first. A large goal in his movies was either to encourage that type of love or illuminate the things that get in the way of that love and show us how we might dismantle them. You make me cry, Eli. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just kind of just going off that biography, I was, uh, because I watched this little clip from, I think, Criterion Channel YouTube and like, it was, I think, a teaser from the box that they were going to, they're going to put out, I think. I'm not sure. There was somebody that they interviewed, and I think, I, I don't know her name, but she was talking about Tongues Untied and how it was like a lot of footage that he didn't know how to organize. And it was only when he 
saw that he had all this and needed a spine to the film that he put himself into it and used his own voice as the kind of through line for it and like then you see that having picked kind of like his first and last film you see that through line of his voice being the the foundation for everything that he's trying to say like he is using his voice to amplify the entire community and in fact sometimes communities is very powerful and I think that that urgency when he felt like he was dying like really comes true like the easiest way to get the point across was to say it and I think for him, that was probably like quite a brave thing to do, especially at the time. Another way to say that is that he was leading by example mm-hmm. and he wanted to bring pride and love into yeah. the communities that he was a part of. So he showed people how he loved himself. I completely agree, Ben, that the information that he provides and the performance of the monologues about his own history do a lot to cohere everything about those movies back to his goals that come out of his life experience. Mm -hmm. Actually, one of the things I was thinking about is like when you were going through his biography was like, like I guess one of the things I wonder about, and I don't know if we have to answer that because we might not be able to find him talking about this, but like, I mean, he joined like this school of journalism, but like he comes out as a documentarian. It's just making me think about like the difference between doing journalism and doing documentary. Like they are somewhat related, but like, Right. Like what makes you want to do something as a documentary versus being a journalist? Yeah. You know, because they fulfill somewhat different roles. But I think the difference can be clearly seen in Riggs's work because like I feel like the difference is like one is still can can be considered an art form, whereas Mm. one is is more just reporting news. The way that Riggs organizes all his ideas and all his footage and the way he edits and the way he adds his own writing and his own voice to the work is what makes it so gripping and so powerful and so personal to you as as a viewer watching this that makes it transcend regular reporting and journalism. Another way to say what both of you are talking about is that journalism goes for as much objectivity as possible and documentary... Mm. (laughs) 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 And documentary has the option to be objective or subjective. I think Mm -hmm. the classic understanding Mm -hmm. of documentary, at least to the American movie-going public, tends to be that documentary aims for objectivity. But with Riggs's work, it really leans into subjectivity in a way that enhances the work. And I can't imagine these movies without Riggs's personal voice and his subjective view on things and some of the creative choices that come out of purposefully inserting that subjectivity, like his experimentation with editing and structuring and cinematography as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe at this point, we should just start talking about Tongues Untied. Yeah, let's do it. I really loved watching Tongues Untied. I didn't know what I was getting into. I thought I was getting into a rather like conventional documentary about the Black gay experience. Having coming out of just watching uh, Paris is Burning for the first time, I was thinking about that film and Tongues Untied in sort of like a comparison with each other. They both focus on a similar community of people. Some of the stylistic tendencies, like the way that text is used and typography is used in both movies, is very similar. But I, I do think the most like striking difference is like perspective. You definitely see Paris is Burning as an outsider's perspective because it was shot by a white woman and people are like putting on these fronts whereas with Tongues Untied, Riggs as a gay black man is able to tell his own story and also I feel like 
his interview subjects or the stories that they tell, they wouldn't be able to open up as freely to other people who are not in their community. Or Because I imagine most of the subjects of the film were acquaintances or friends of Riggs who he just got together when he decided to make this movie. And that's what I think is so beautiful about Tongues and Tie. Out of many other things, like we can get into the stylistic stuff a bit later on. But that's the one thing that stuck with me. What about you guys? For me, I think the thing that really stuck out to me was this thing we're talking about where it's a subjectivity of him as the filmmaker trying to kind of organize his thoughts and like make this argument about like uh, breaking the silence and like expressing the way that they wish to live their lives and also have the public view them as equally valid as everyone else, right? Having that very kind of personal perspective really made it very hard to look away. It felt like he was really sharing something that was so intimate. A lot of the kind of anecdotes that he shares are extremely intimate and the poeticism that he brings with those anecdotes as well is also something that really elevates the whole thing for me, as well as the stuff from Essex Hemphill as well. Yeah, his stuff is also really, really engaging and interesting and just having that kind of like a talking hit like from a regular documentary, but having it be written to be poetic and written to be musical and rhythmic brings you into the experience of learning about their stories. And also those sequences where poetry is recited to camera, those sequences are edited in a way that I think is poetic. Yes. Right. To emphasize certain beats and words. And the overlaying of audio as well, Mm -hmm. just to emphasize a certain phrase, to like have a, a drowning out of all these voices makes you think about the community outside of like this one person telling the story. So like collective memory or collective experiences that are shared by this wide group of people becomes so evident when he's able to put all these voices together and that's that's another thing that i really loved about tongues untied and black is black ink the part that you're kind of referencing eli the part where like he has the close-ups of the mouths especially the part where like people are like saying slurs at him Mm -hmm. yes he intercuts those bits over his kind of anecdote and like that's very powerful because he's not just telling his experience he's also trying to like help you relive his kind of way that he hears this on a day-to-day basis and like increasing the repetition of that and really kind of making you feel how those words over time really cut. Yeah, and I thought that was really powerful and also really creative and something I have not seen in terms of like documentary like this. With the overlaying of voices, both one at a time and then put together, that also feels reflective of the theme of taking a look at a community as individuals who must love themselves and also must listen to each other. As I was watching these movies, that technique of overlaying voices comes up a lot. I came up with a little term for it for myself. Oh, I'm calling yes. it. Yes, school us. School us, Eli. <laughs> I have my pen ready. I'm calling it the vocal collage. Wow. <laughs> oh, boy. That's pretty good. What does that do? It, for me, it creates a mood and an understanding that I'm listening to more voices than I can comprehend what is actually being said, but I can catch snippets and I can catch the mood of what's being said. So for example, this is jumping ahead to Black as Black Ain't. There's a moment of vocal collage when Riggs is naming some of the ailments that he's going through as a result Mm -hmm. of AIDS, and they start to overlap. I think this was a choice that was made by Christian Badgley editing. I don't know if Riggs specifically said to make that choice, but it is an editing stylistic marker of Riggs that at the very least, Badgley picked up on and knew how to use to a different emotional ends than it is used at times in Tongues Untied or in other movies as well. I always like when you can catch these moments when a director does something that's not just a one trick thing. This feels like a technique that is pretty original to Riggs. 
and he uses in a pretty wide variety of ways to different ends in different movies. One of the things that I'm drawn to in particular with Riggs is the specificity of word choice. It mm -hmm. makes sense because there are a lot of poems recited. He has a very particular ear for what word is being said, when, and how. I really enjoy that. To be able to tell that so much thought was put into it is just fun for me personally. I'm kind of curious, is there a specific instance that, that like popped out of you in terms of like specific word choice? Yeah, I think as an example... I think that the words that matter most to Riggs, he tends to either repeat or put into a rhythmic refrain. From the top of Tongues Untied, there's brother to brother, brother to brother, which gets repeated and overlapped. Mm -hmm. There's also the refrain, anger invented becomes pain, unspoken oh, becomes yeah. rage, release becomes violence, cha-cha-cha. And that repeats and overlaps as well. There are also specific words that he will put as text on screen. He does this a lot in Jeune Regretta Rianne to sort of mm -hmm. prelude the main idea in an upcoming interview. So in Tongues Untied, there's an intertitle at one point that says, listen, dot, dot, dot. And then mm. it cuts to a man giving advice. Do you know what that reminds me of? What? That reminds me a lot of, like, a lot of the visual stuff that has been coming out of Beyonce's work recently. Mm. Which is, I don't think it's the furthest reach because, like, the voiceover direct address to the audience, the use of text, the use of, like, staging certain documentary-esque interviews with people. I think a lot of his work can be traced into modern-day, like, music video making. And it just shows how his stylistic legacy can live on in other forms of art. Definitely. That's great. Also, something worth noting is that for a lot of these... I think all of the director dress monologues, the person on screen, whether it's Riggs or Hemphill or another person, is looking into the lens almost always, I believe. Mm -hmm. In our discussion about Agnes Varda, we talked about making the audience feel seen. And I think that this is a more urgent, even more direct way of accomplishing that. It feels like Riggs is telling you personally about his life. He's looking yeah. right at you. The mise-en-scene of those direct address scenes add to that because it's just them theater lighting like in front of a black background just like talking to you that it sort of just strips away anything else and it's just like person to person. I am talking to you, the viewer. I also really like the direct addresses with, you know, all the other people that he's talking to. I mean, this is also in Black is Back Eight as well. Especially in Tongues Untied at the start, it's really, this is kind of fun having some of, I think, I guess his friends tell you these anecdotes to you and they're telling you with such joy in a sense, even though sometimes they're relaying some stuff where they're going through some sort of discrimination as well. But having them kind of tell you like, you are Riggs or like, you are their friend, it's such a friendly confrontational thing like you were saying, Eli, where mm -hmm. like, you know, they're telling you this anecdote where like something really bad happened to them but they're telling you as as if you are their friend putting you in that position Riggs kind of brings you into his community very intimately feels like a nice hug in a sense yeah being huddled together with mm -hmm. all his friends and like in this black box studio and they're just telling you about their lives and the way they live their lives how proud it makes them and how sometimes it's not easy that's the thing that I appreciated the most about Tongues That Tie, I think. Like, it really made me feel, like, as a person who is not at all identifying with this experience at all, made me feel welcomed to understand how their lives are like. Yeah, there's a lot of candor and a lot of honesty. It does feel intimate. It's a privileged look at Riggs and his friend group without feeling exploitative or troublesome. I, I can't imagine how mm -hmm. his movies would be those things, but they're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also a lot of humor. Think about the chapter in the movie about the Institute of Snapthology. 
Wilson snapping for the listener at home. Very easily. One yeah. of the best parts of the movie, honestly. When it came on, I was like, wait, what? It was so unexpected. So dynamic. Uh, uh, so he, okay, he begins it with like, you know, he, he has like the supers where he like, like makes it seem like it's going to be some academic thing. And then it's just snapping. <laughs> and then like, you know, he, he names all the snaps and like they do all the things. But I just loved how he calls back to it at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't remember what it is, but you know, he has a final statement and it ends on a picture of a, a black man doing a snap. There is no sound, but you hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe the last line, if I'm remembering correctly, is Riggs saying, quote, Whatever awaits me, this much I know. I was blind to my brother's beauty, and now I see. My own. Death to the voice that believed we were worth wanting, loving each other. Now I hear. I was mute, tongue-tied, burdened by shadows and silence. Now I speak. And my burden is lightened, lifted, free. And then the final image is that cartoon of a man snapping. <laughs> I feel like the snapping segment really comes across as kind of having this element of humor and fun and like it injects a bit of lightness to the entire thing about owning their way of life, right? Riggs is able to capture a range of emotional experiences from the serious to the lighter. That is an authentic reflection of the way that life works. You know, there's nothing less enjoyable to me than a movie that is ceaselessly dour, mm-hmm. you know, that is just cynical, wants to make you miserable along with it. I hate that. Yeah. With these movies and other movies that I think all three of us enjoy, there's a range. There's an acknowledgement that life can be serious and life can be joyous. Yeah. Both those things are reflected in Briggs's movies. In that sense, it's kind of like the celebration of their lives, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it is about untying the tongue, so like breaking the silence, but it's also, in that sense, celebrating it in the public eye. And I think having that snap thing, like, I I guess it depends on the person, but like, it could be a small part of their lives, but it could be a huge part of how they express themselves. And I think him kind of giving this thing that doesn't seem like this big topic, so much screen time in this one hour long thing, really shows that he sees it as a way of kind of expressing that identity. One of the more serious things that Tongues Untied touches on, and this could bridge nicely into Black is Black Ain't, Riggs does acknowledge his diagnosis with AIDS. There's a section where he talks more directly about AIDS and he he puts on screen obituaries of Joseph Beam, James McLaurin, Anthony Hooker, David Naylor, and other faces without names going by more and more rapidly until he lands on his own image. And he says, quote, I listen for my own quiet implosion, end quote. From Ethnic Notions, Riggs's first doc, through Black is Black Ain't, Riggs was only working for seven years. He made eight movies, shorts, and features in seven years. His diagnosis with AIDS came one year into those eight years. Wow. In many ways, Black is Black Ain't is a culmination of the things that Riggs cared about in all his movies. I mean that in the autobiographical sense, in the thematic sense, in the structural sense. So maybe let's start talking about Black is Black Ain't and the ways in which it relates to Tongues Untied, but also tries to accomplish, I think, something a little bit broader. Yeah. Not in a bad way, but but broader. Yes, yes. Looking back at the two movies, Black is Black Ain't, I feel like is the more like commendable movie because of how far Riggs was reaching with this movie in like getting interviews with Angela Davis and like other prominent Black writers. 
like having those talking heads and then mixing it with his own style that he established with like tongues untied with like the direct address also mixing in the stuff with his own AIDS illness and how he was deteriorating and the fact that he was able to pull off a movie that is just as emotionally engaging and structurally sound as Tongues Untied is just a major, a major, major feat for me. It's a real tightrope walk, that movie. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Christiane Badgley told me about when we spoke was that when she was editing Black Is Black Ain't, after Riggs's passing, one of the responses she got to cuts of the movie were that it felt encyclopedic. And she would respond that that was what Riggs wanted. Well, because you have very clearly defined sections in the movie. So like he has like a whole section where he like talks about black masculinity and how like toxic it is. And it's very like contained to that one section. But within it, he like shows different viewpoints and the history of it. And then after that section, he like fully moves on to like a a section about black music, like this beautiful mashup of these different musical genres. But what I think really works is how he uses his own voice and his own like poems or his own writing to bridge between these different sections so it doesn't feel like oh this is a chapter ending this is a new chapter beginning and more like a steady flow through these different sections in addition to his own voice he also comes back to this central metaphor of gumbo as a dish that's Mm -hmm. important to his family made by his grandmother that he feels reflects black american life and community in the sense that it is a vast combination of different things with the potential to include as much variety as the gumbo chef wants. Mm -hmm. That ties to the central goal of the movie, which he states pretty explicitly up top. There's a bit where he talks about, quote, communal selfhood, who's in the community and who's not, end quote. Riggs wants to show the things that cause gatekeeping. The dismantling of what is considered Black or what isn't considered Black is is one of his main focuses throughout the the film. Within any subject, he begins each the topic by explaining what are the conventions of the topic. Like, for example, with Black masculinity, they talk about like how they're supposed to behave and why that is because they need to reclaim their manhood. And then he proceeds on to dismantling that idea idea that toxic male traits are necessary in achieving some sort of racial equality between black men and white men. Exactly. He presents the conventional understanding and then the variations, the infinite variations. He wants you to understand that there are no rules and that anyone and everyone is valid. Even though he is talking mostly about black Americans, he aims that understanding beyond just black Americans too. Definitely. I'm thinking about like this idea that it's encyclopedic and like going through so many different sections and like uh, ways of looking at black culture as well as like the way that, for example, black masculinity is a response to the racial discrimination that they are facing and how that kind of morphs and also becomes toxic in its own right in the way that it intersects with gender. And I thought that was really interesting. Like he kind of goes through that kind of process with you to help you understand how those things work. Yes, it's somewhat sectioned, but I also feel like he has a way of kind of referring back to the things that he's already talked about. For example, when he brings in religion and then kind of juxtaposes how these religious leaders and ideologies can actually reinforce that toxic masculinity and also cause that struggle between black men and black women and like how it puts black women in a more difficult position. 
Although I was thinking about what you said, Eli, which is about how he's presenting so many viewpoints, but I found it interesting how the way that was edited, he had like a stronger stance on one side, for example. Like, yes, for example, he definitely, I would say, is not for religious leaders who are using their ideologies to mm-hmm. put down black women or like put them in the kitchen or whatever, you know, or like promote homophobia. Yeah. 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 And also like with Afrocentrism and like how, you know, he goes to these kind of communities and I found it very interesting to see they're trying to go back to their more African roots, right? And then building these communities where they're wearing more traditional clothing in America, but then also seeing how those communities also are trying to impose some kind of patriarchy on black communities as well. I found that quite interesting because at first I thought he was introducing it as like another slice of black American life. But then it felt like he was also kind of critiquing it more kind of harshly. And I think rightfully so as well. So I don't know. It was interesting that it felt like he was taking this encyclopedic thing and it is not that objective in a sense. You know, he's trying to kind of tell you how these systems kind of cause inequalities within the black community, right? Mm -hmm. Like how they cause conflict. And that I found was quite fascinating. I don't know what you all think. It's very clear that one of the objectives of this doc is how he wants to like break down these barriers between different black communities. And I feel like it's very clear when he shows the unity, what what was it called? The um the unity rally or, or the, the truth between the, between, the truce, right? Yeah, the truce between, between the, the Crips and the Bloods yeah. that he focused on a little bit towards the end of the film it became clear to me that what he wants to do is build a, a, a greater black community through this film the same way that he was using tongues and tie to build a stronger community for gay black men with black is black ain't he he's trying to do the same for the larger black community one of the things that black is black ain't has in common with tongues untied is this idea of opening dialogue one of the most important quotations to me in black is black ain't is when bell hooks talks about the idea of communion She explains that as being a union of people based on communication. It's like Riggs is presenting this touchstone of ideas and Ben, as you noted, explaining the ways in which they can be used to divide people and is engaging and starting discussions with the audience on those topics. One of the other important things to note that is in common with both Tongues Untied and Black is Black Ain't is in moments of direct address to the audience, Riggs will call the audience you. Mm. What that you means changes movie to movie and maybe even within each movie. But an example is one of the chapters in Black is Black Ain't where Riggs starts to speak about some prominent public figures who are black and also gay. And then Riggs asks in direct address to the audience, quote, when the people sang the freedom songs, do you think they also sang them for you? End quote. By directing the word you at the audience, whether or not you are part of the you that's addressed in that moment, it makes you feel a sense of unity and a desire to be one with other people and addressed in the you. And that is a very smart technique to get people to feel the desire to come together and have dialogue together and be part of a collective you. Does that make sense? Yes. I think it makes sense. I think using that second person also forces you to kind of think of yourself in that kind of context, right? Like, yes. For example, being a part of a larger movement but feeling sidelined. It's kind of challenging you to think about how that would make you feel to be put in this position, like being a prominent leader for the Black community but being sidelined because you happen to be gay or whatever. Because he has Michelle Williams as well and I was just reading up a little bit about her because apparently she was somewhat controversial with 
her book, The Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman. Yeah, like, and I found that kind of interesting because I was just reading a little bit about her and I found that kind of interesting. And it kind of speaks to kind of how he's trying to include all these different segments, different kinds of ways of thinking about the black community and also different kinds of black communities. And I mean, he has a stance here and there where he does, you know, have his own subjective arguments that he's trying to make. Similar to how he gives space to the experiences of his friends in Tongues Untied, he gives philosophical and academic space to the opinions of these other public figures who come into Black is Black Ain't. I would say though, like, I guess in my viewing of it, the parts that spoke the most to me emotionally were the parts of like, people that he was interviewing on the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I can't help but feel like I wish there was more of that. Because sometimes I felt like these kind of so-called thought leaders that he had on, I felt like they almost had too much airtime. Right. Because it's like, for example, the one where he's interviewing three black male teenagers, right? And it seems like they're part of gangs, right? And they're probably like 15, 16. That part was probably the part that I felt most emotionally invested in a sense because it's like, you know, these three young men who grow up in lower class neighborhoods and then they kind of end up in gang life, but then have such self-awareness about how they wish they could pull themselves out Mm -hmm. of that life. And that part was so emotionally affecting for me. And I kind of wish there was more of those bits where it was more about people who don't have their names on books. So it would feel more like a gumbo because it's like, I did feel like there was a bit too much of these more prominent and thinkers putting their words in the gumbo and it felt like they had an outsized Mm. portion of the gumbo you know Mm -hmm. yeah i i would agree with that i think going into it i expected more of that because there's a clip at the top and a clip at the end of Riggs talking with some of the people who we see on the street on screen you get the sense of how good he is at connecting with strangers like that yeah i also wish that there were more of it yeah what do you guys think about the the stuff where you see him in his hospital bed and when when he's really like going through the hard parts of, of his of his disease and and when he's talking about how he's feeling or even that that little bit that I loved the introduction to the black music bit where he sings different it was like a little <laughs> comedic moment that reminded me of the snapology stuff from Tongues Untied but sort of tinged with this sadness from just looking at him on that hospital bed like unable to even prop himself up it's a little like heartbreaking so what do you think about having all the that footage in and and having him mix it with this sort of encyclopedic breakdown of black culture we talked about this briefly but i think that both comes unintentionally from how that footage was taken when christian badgley was interviewing Riggs about how he wanted to structure and execute the movie. And some of that footage makes its way into the movie, of course, but also it feels like a natural extension of Riggs's autobiographical tendencies. In terms of what it adds, those bits with Riggs in the hospital, and especially as the movie goes on, him talking about why he wants to include footage of himself running naked through the woods and what that means to him, and how he talks about his family and who he wants from his family there when he passes away. Those are the things that elevate the movie to Mm -hmm. seminal, important rigs for me. Agreed. agreed. For me, the autobiographical aspects of Black is Black Aimed give you this sense that he's trying to tell you that yes, this is kind of his encyclopedia of what Black is and what Black ain't, but also that it comes from him as a Black gay man that's dying of AIDS. And I think knowing that makes you feel like he's not trying to say that he is speaking for everyone. Mm -hmm. 
you know, he's speaking from his perspective, from his experiences and from the people that he has met. And I think that helps you kind of feel like he's asking you to add to this conversation if you were part of this black community. And I think that's the thing that I feel like he's inviting with this film. The title is almost an invitation as well, you know, for you to define what black is or black ain't. What I find interesting is that is the thing we were talking about before, which is like, there's a bit of a conflict within this community that he's also trying to address. Because when every time you define what your community is, you're also defining what it isn't, mm-hmm. right? Whenever you include, you're also going to exclude. You cannot avoid it. And I think he's trying to remind people of that. And I think that's the kind of the beautiful thing about it, that he's saying that almost that that's unavoidable, but that you must know that you are doing this. And then how do you make sure you try and include more or like are cognizant of the people you exclude? There's even direct moments in the movie that acknowledge the impossibility of having the final say on anything. He's not trying to do that, Mm -hmm. but he says something about how the word that Black people use to identify themselves has changed over time and will continue to change. And that everything in this movie is not final. It is just a jumping Mm -hmm. off point. You know, something that comes to mind is that this movie does not touch at all on the intersection of Black identity and trans identity. Mm -hmm. That feels like something that would be part of an update or a sequel if Riggs had the chance to make that. But the movie's still incredibly relevant, as are the rest of Riggs' movies. It's especially dismaying to me that these movies are not talked about more because they are so relevant. Mm -hmm. It feels relevant now because of the fact that he made it as a film that isn't about being the final say. So it's like how it's an ongoing conversation. Yeah, his film is full of literal ongoing conversations that don't have an end. So I'm reminded of this short exchange between these two, they seem like students. One of them is saying that the history is not important and one of them is saying the history is very important. But I mean, I personally agree with one. I believe the history is important, but I'm not going to say that the other guy is wrong because the way, what he's trying to say, I mean, it makes sense to him. And I think Riggs doesn't have, doesn't kind of put a button on this to, to like agree with either of them. He's just saying these two are discussing this but what's more important about the conversation is that they are discussing this Mm -hmm. and that's the thing that i take away from it and like the thing that affected me was seeing these two being so invested in this because they care about their future one of the things from riggs's interview with the ucla student in 1992 that has really stuck with me and he said this in 1992 quote i think the 21st century is going to see major cataclysms the Rodney King verdict and the rioting that occurred and the kind of malaise as well as just general convulsions, we're going to see much more of that to the degree that we continue to deny the contradictions in our social reality. And it's going to occur in pockets. It will not occur in the kinds of pockets that we can feel that it's isolated or removed from us. It will continue to come closer and closer to home, wherever home may be. And that force will change. And unfortunately, it may be bloody, but I don't think it has to be with the degree that we continue to engage in this pathological denial of reality. We only create the kind of powder keg that will someday result in a major social explosion and devastation. Oh my God. In other words, watch the movies of Marlon Riggs. They are masterpieces. They are all too timely. And they accomplish his ultimate goal of breaking the silence and starting discussions so that we may love each other and love ourselves. That was so beautiful. I just want to thank you, Eli, because this is the first time on the podcast that we've done a filmmaker that I've never seen a movie of. And this was like 
such like a formative viewing experience watching both movies and talking about them with you both. It's just been such a joy. Thanks, Eli. Thank you, guys. I, I'm really glad that, you know, this was a learning experience for me, too. It, it really gave me the chance to do a deep dive. And being able to talk about it with you guys allows for a lot of critical thought. And I'm very happy about that. So we'll also take this chance to mention that for the very first time, Deep Cut has a discount code. Woo! Discounts, discounts. Yeah! We got for the big bucks, baby. <laughs> We want to give a special thank you to the streaming service Ovid.tv. They're a streaming site that brings the best art house, documentary, and independent films from around the world to everyone. They have films from a wide diversity of viewpoints and many films that are unlikely to be found on any other platform. Vanity Fair film critic Kay Austin Collins, who you may recognize from his podcast with Dana Stevens called Flashback, called Ovid, quote, a fantastic streamer for people with a taste for foreign, political, and otherwise beyond the American mainstream films, end quote. So when I was watching Riggs in September, getting ready for this discussion, Ovid was the only streaming service at the time to have his films available. In addition to the movies of Marlon Riggs, Ovid also has films from leading female directors like Kelly Reichardt, Deborah Granick, and Chantal Ackerman, from whom Ovid has eight movies. Ovid has a range of comedies, foreign films, dramas, thrillers, and more. With Ovid, you don't have to choose between escapism and engagement. Wow. So we've got a deal for you. For 50% off your first three months, use code DEEPCUT at checkout on ovid.tv. That's www.ovid.tv and use promo code... <laughs> and, oh <laughs> and use promo code D E E P C U T. And special thank you to Priscilla Posada, the director of community engagement at Ovid.tv. Thank you, Ovid. Thank you, Ovi. We love you. <laughs> <laughs> Be sure to also check out our upcoming bonus episode. Eli interviews Christiane Badgley, who was a longtime collaborator and editor for Marlon Riggs and who completed his final film, Black is Black Ink. Special thank you to her for her time in speaking with me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Cut Pod. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. Be sure to tune in to our next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening. <laughs> See you next time. What if our sign off is just all never. this harmonizing thank you? Okay, thank you. ready? Three, two, one. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, God. We just lost all our subscribers. <laughs>